cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I sit down with author and journalist Duff McDonald. He has written such seminal books as Last Man Standing, The Ascent of Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase. His second book was The Firm, The Story of McKinsey and Its Secret Influence on American Business. And what's shocking about that book, not only that uh, McKinsey is as influential as it is in government and finance, and business in general, but given their storied history and their power and influence, this was literally the first book ever written on McKinsey. That, that's pretty shocking. Uh, full disclosure, I myself have referenced Duff's work, and about a half a dozen years ago I wrote something called, Is McKinsey the Root of All Evil?, and the answer turned out, in my opinion, to more or less have been yes. Uh, his book is really a deep and detailed uh, read into the storied firm, and it's quite fascinating. His most recent book is The Golden Passport, Harvard Business School and the Limits of Capitalism and the Moral Failure of the MBA Elite. It is also a deeply researched and highly critical uh, look at one of the most significant uh, institutions in the world of fill-in-the-blank, government, finance, business, etc. Uh, what I love about Duff's work is that it's not just opinion uh, or, or visceral like or dislike. These are really deep dives, richly researched uh, pieces of work into an institution the people involved, the impact it's had on not only the world of business and uh, finance and, and government, but just how it fits into the overall um, skew of society, and including things like what's the impact of our business school on economic inequality? And he approaches this from a very, very objective, nonpartisan uh, approach. I found all of his books to be absolutely fascinating, and I think you'll find the conversation we had uh, quite interesting as well. So with no further ado, my conversation with Duff McDonald. My special guest today is Duff McDonald. He is a contributing editor at the New York Observer. He has previously contributed as an editor at New York Magazine, Fortune and other fine publications. He has written pretty much for every major business publication from 
Fortune, Business Week, Condé Nast Portfolio, GQ Wired. He has won numerous National Magazine Awards and is the author of numerous books. The one that caught my attention was The Firm, The Story of McKinsey and Its Secret Influence on American Business. But he has also written Last Man Standing, The Ascent of Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase. And his most recent book is The Golden Passport, Harvard Business School, The Limits of Capitalism, and the Moral Failure of the MBA Elite. Duff McDonald, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. Let's start out talking a little bit about your career in journalism. What attracted you to writing about business? It's funny you should ask. I uh, went to Wharton as an undergraduate a little unwittingly. I, I was from Toronto, and I did not have a sense of uh, Wall Street at the time. Mm-hmm. I was interested in uh, being a businessman, was which is what I told my guidance counselor. Right. And so he told me to go to a business school, so I did. And I did well enough there and got a job at Goldman Sachs out of undergrad. It's, it's not that you wanted to, but it's the law. You come out of Wharton, and there that's you go. pretty much, yeah. there's a line. You could go to Goldman Sachs here. You could go to McKinsey there. There's a whole bunch of options. Exactly. Although I kind of stumped my classmates. I only got one job offer from oh, Goldman really? Sachs. And apparently, if you get one from Goldman, you're supposed to have gotten one from everybody else, uh-huh. too. But I worked there for two years in corporate finance. Mm-hmm. And while uh, impressed with... Uh, the quality of the talent and the, you know, they know what they're doing there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for me. And uh, I actually tried to get a job in book publishing first and couldn't get hired. So there was nothing available in steam engines? You were looking into (laughs) businesses that were soon going to collapse? Exactly. uh... So thank you, publishing industry, for not hiring me and (laughs) merely hiring me later. And then a friend suggested journalism, and I looked into... So you had never really been thinking about writing? Has, has there been previous authorship, any writing, I, casually even? Not on the side. Like, I was a really? capable writer, but mm-hmm. I, ne- I don't think I ever once said, I want to be a writer. And so, back to your question, how did I get into business journalism? It's because to get into journalism, With I needed I needed to write about business. So that was your entree. Yeah, and um, that's that's pretty fascinating. What does your process look like? How do you figure out what you want to write about, and how do you begin covering a specific topic? The areas you have written about, both in print and in books, is a pretty broad cross section of of American finance. Yeah, I basically uh, tend to follow my interest, you know, wherever it lands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that um, my my choice of topic is somewhat random, but I, after a point in my career, got to a point where I could, uh, you know, I knew enough editors that I could get assignments with good story ideas. So mm-hmm. it was just about a good story and you were pitching about, ideas to them and and most of the time they liked it yeah and I and and in the other direction so you know it's following uh, just sort of my interest but if you look at the three books uh, they all sort of follow each other Jamie Dimon was the first one because I'd had a cover story in New York magazine after the fall of Bear Stearns which we ter- we sold as a book and then 
Mackenzie followed that because Jamie himself, who's uh, ant- notoriously anti-consultant, it didn't resonate enough with me at the time that I thought, oh, that's my next book, but it, enough that it was in the book about Jamie. Mm-hmm. And my editor said, what, a, what, what about what he said about McKinsey? What do you think? And I looked into it and I was like, I can't believe no one's written a book about I was about, about to say, it's astonishing that they've been around as long as they have been and are as influential as they are. No one has really called them to task. I think it's because uh, they probably never cooperated. Mm-hmm. And uh, did they cooperate with you? They did. They did not at first. Uh, we used the age-old "this you, book is happening anyway" uh, thing that we use in magazine journalism. Sure, you, you can know. either help shape it or just come out and you can read it with everybody else and I promise you won't be happy. And the shocker is that McKinsey came around and mm-hmm. then you get to the third book, Harvard Business School, and that came about just because you know McKinsey and Harvard have been connected for a long time. For a long time, and uh, they are the only one of the three. Uh, subjects that refuse to speak to me at all. <laughs> That's interesting. Is your process, I know some people research, 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 and then they finish the research and they write, 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 and other people research, write, research, write. How, how do you approach covering a subject? I'm a broad, like McKinsey and Harvard Business School, two fairly giant subjects. Uh, I'm more of the former where I sort of try to front load the research. Uh-huh. I found through the three books that the hardest part of writing a book, at least for me, is the middle part, Uh organizing what you know Mm -hmm. and getting ready to write. Because reporting, if you enjoy it and have whatever uh, capability, it's not that hard. You're just talking to people. And and you're doing a thousand words and it's a fairly clear structure. Yeah. On the other hand, a hundred thousand words, that's a very different structure. So the first time I did that, it nearly, you know, broke my mind. I was Mm -hmm. like, I don't even know how to like take this word file and start cutting and pay like the the sort of just sh- manual uh challenge was was uh uh sort of terrifying but um and you know so i i do do research at first uh, organization then writing but you know is, is you by the time you're writing is when you know the most about the subject so you know you do go back and look into things that you stumble on at that point in the process. How how much of Harvard Business School is part of that group that the national populist movement around the world is tilting against? Before I looked into it, I I would have I I think I if you'd asked me I would have guessed that HBS was, you know, dominant in both business and government leadership positions. One of the things that's really interesting about them uh, as opposed to say Harvard Law School or or other places is there are precious few Harvard MBAs that ever have a career in government. You know, they go in at the top like Hank Paulson right uh, or something like that, but like if you look at the top 1,000 people in the federal government, you probably find five Harvard MBAs. That's all. Yeah. So they are not, uh, uh, they are not part of the uh, governing elite, except if you uh, think that entities. business, that corporations are essentially ruling this country. Well, to a large degree, they have been. Yeah. So in that regard, they are, uh, I think the FT came out with a survey, its latest survey of the 5,000 largest companies in the world or the 1,000 mm-hmm. or something. And 
MBAs were not dominant as C, uh, as a percentage of CEOs, but of those CEOs that were MBAs, Harvard was totally dominant. They had more than twice as many as the closest one, which I think was Stanford or INSEAD. So uh, they have a long history of uh, accelerating people's climb to the top of whatever uh, greasy pole they're climbing. <laughs> let, let me throw a quote of yours at you and see what you have to say about this. Harvard Business School has not only proven an enormous failure, but its very <laughs> success has made it positively dangerous. Discuss. I think that one of the things that they have con- consistently failed to do is to teach their students that hierarchy and success does not equal that does not mean that you are right and does not mean that you are wise and part of that has to do with the fact that you can't pitch yourself as a graduate school of Harvard where your where your mission is to make uh, boatloads of money right. so what they sell themselves as is educating enlightened leaders and these enlightened leaders are convinced of their own destiny as leaders uh, from the get-go, and they confuse all sorts of other inputs for their essential correctness and rightness, and then, you know, make decisions based on that. And it's uh, it's like they've confused the ability to make money with wisdom. So let me throw another of your quotes back at you. Harvard Business School has contributed to pretty much every bad thing that has happened in American business and the economy over the past century. Now, is that a fact or a slight exaggeration? Did I write that? Uh, that that's I'm paraphrasing. Oh, okay, so I wouldn't want to like you know a couple of reviewers have said that I blame the recent financial crisis on them. Mm-hmm. I did not. I don't. Uh, I don't recall seeing anything. Yeah, like and that. in the book, uh, what I took issue with was uh, Dean J. Light in the immediate aftermath of the crisis saying. Uh, we won't. We don't want to spend time looking to fix blame. That's not interesting. But we must be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the list of HBS grads who are in positions of authority in the lead up to the crisis, right. you have George W. Bush, you have Christopher Cox, you have Hank Paulson, you have Jamie Dimon, you have go down the whoever else at Goldman Sachs, Merrill so, Lynch, Morgan Stanley, so Country John Wright. Thane, uh, right. John Paulson. So you have it like that. I, I, in no way was I like it's their fault, but it's like wait a second. When we're making a list of people to <laughs> figure out how to not do this again, I don't think you have earned the right to be uh, in, at the head of that line. You were at the head of it leading into this thing. The metaphor I I like is when a surgical procedure is botched, you always send in a fresh surgeon to fix it, who is not looking to cover up the previous snafu. He's just going in or she's just going in to do what they need to do. When you send somebody to fix something where they may have had hand a hand in the creation Absolutely. of the problem, you're not going to get. And, and that's been a pretty fair criticism of having Geithner and Larry Summers as part of the cleanup crew. Are they there to clean up or are they there to clean up their reputation? It's hard to tell. Yeah, and Hank Paulson, you know, credited with uh, stabilizing a clearly mm-hmm. precarious situation— but he that was not his only motivation at the time. He was motivated to save Goldman Sachs. He mm-hmm. was motivated to uh, there were sweetheart deals with Goldman all over, all over the place. So uh, again, was it their fault? 
who's you know who, who you, we can't really blame anyone, but they certainly weren't uh, without fault to say to say the least. So here's a, a a question that I'm curious about. So you you reference Stanford, you went to Wharton. There's the Booth School at Chicago, Columbia, talk at Dartmouth. You go down the list of high ranked MBA programs. It seems like there's a lot of competition. Is is Harvard Business School still it, or have some of these other really well regarded entities cut a little bit into their space? Uh, I can answer that question with uh, a quote that's in the book. I can't remember who said it, so I'm, I apologize to its source now. But they said, um, if you want your grandparents to be impressed. Uh, go to Harvard Business School. If you want your grandkids to be impressed, go to Stanford. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I read recently there are 76,000 Harvard MBA alumni with a third of those living outside of the U.S. That's a pretty potent network of uh, for any graduate school. Has, has Harvard Business School graduates become the new Illuminati? Uh I think I I I say in the book that it may be the most powerful alumni network that ever has been, right? They are uh, uh, they have significant representation among the world's wealthiest and among leadership at uh, in the corporate world. Overseas, they are in more government positions because that you know people tend to send the, their kids to the states to get mm-hmm. that stamp of credibility. So let's talk a little bit about Jamie Dimon. Warren Buffett has described him as one of his favorite CEOs. What What's your take on Mr. Dimon? Readers of the book will see that I was impressed with him. Uh, he's one of the most charismatic CEOs I've ever met. He clearly endears people to him and, you know, loyalty is is one of his strong suits. I think his management of J.P. Morgan Chase pretty much, you know, stands for itself. I know that you haven't always, you know, you've been a critic in the past, but as, as far as just C'est yeah, moi? So as as manage as if your job is managing. not so much a critic of him as the banking industries begging to be bailed out. Sure, how fortuitous was it that they had their big subprime disaster years before the financial crisis hit. So when they had a liquidate, there was a bid there for them to get out. It wasn't selling into the panic. Or am I giving them too much credit? You know, uh, one of the things that I criticize the case method of teaching uh, at HBS for Uh is that they allow corporate executives to claim foresight when it was just circumstance and <laughs> right. luck. I think uh, we, I th- in Last Man Standing, I talk about the fact that they were just they were trying to get the pieces of the conveyor belt all moving at the right time and uh, were, were a step behind mm-hmm. uh, some of the other players like Merrill. And uh, uh, so, yeah, there was luck there. But at the same time, I had numerous people tell me from inside the company that Jamie and and the people who work with him had sort of suddenly feeling on alert a Mm -hmm. little before uh, everyone else. Well, I'm doing this from memory. And in my book, when I was researching Bailout Nation, Bank of America was a disaster. Merrill Lynch, going on the list, Countrywide, Morgan Stanley. 
Notably missing from the Parade of Terribles was J.P. Morgan. And when you do the deeper dive, you find out, well, they had a derivative snafu and they had these problems with CDOs, but it wasn't right in the middle of the 0809 where the bids just went away. I want to say it was three or five years earlier. So when they had to clean that up, uh, the housing market was still there. Mm -hmm. They were able to go out to the market and work their way out of whatever it was. And I apologize if I'm getting that wrong. I'm doing this from memory. But clearly, their derivative snafu predated Bear and Lehman and AIG and everybody else. It's always better to sell into an up market than into a panic. And also, you know, and their their next derivative snafu, the London Whale, was after. And I think... It might be out of a little naivete on my part, but what Jamie said and what Sandy Weil had said before him is their focus on the fortress balance sheet mm-hmm. to be able to withstand you know, anything to or buy when the streets are running with blood or right. whatever it is. Uh, it's you know that that was a stated intention long before yes. they did so. And look what they did. They picked up Bear Stearns for a song, originally $2, ultimately $10 a share. They ended up getting that brand new Bear Stearns building, which was probably worth at that point more than the, the rest of Bear price, Stearns. Yeah. And, um, WAMU. And, and Washington Mutual. If you remember, was it, was it City? Someone was maneuvering to get WAMU and somebody who had a, let's call it a dubious balance sheet. And when... J.P. Morgan showed up, it was, yeah, you guys are done. We're going there. And and I will tell you from personal experience, at the time, we had a Washington Mutual account. My ATM credit card, where I used to get charged a dollar or $2 at Chase, I want to say the deal took place on like a Saturday or a Sunday. By Tuesday or Wednesday, the fee was gone from you. It was in 48 hours, and they were off and running. It was a pretty seamless transition, and that was... A pretty substantial purchase. Yeah, and that was when in October of that yeah, year. Late. So it was like, but, oh, but it was still in you know Lehman frenzy. Right. A lot of people rained a lot of hate down on the guy as a, as as their favorite you know boogeyman from the financial crisis. But as a manager and as a per, you know just from what I know him as a person and stuff, like I couldn't be more impressed. I still a couple of people wrote online that how do I square. Uh, a positive biography of Jamie Dimon with a searing critique of Harvard Business School. <laughs> and it's simple. Hey, not everybody who comes out of there is... is well, yeah, that's the point. It's know. like, I'm not saying everyone out of there is evil and everyone out of there doesn't know what they're doing. It's They're clearly very good at teaching people the things they need to do to get to the top. But as Henry Mintzberg at McGill says, getting to the top is what matters to the student and the school when it's selling itself to prospective mm-hmm. MBA students. What matters to the rest of us is what they do once they're there. Mm-hmm. And in that group, Diamond clearly is a standout. How secret is McKinsey's influence? Yeah, I got mocked in, in a, from a couple quarters for that, saying it's no secret. <laughs> uh, to which I responded, um, "We're trying to sell books." And, okay. And the two points for honesty. <clears throat> the secret part about McKinsey's influence is that when it is not for public institution or governmental body or something like that that has to disclose it, none of their work is disclosed by right. anyone, by the client, by McKinsey. So. Uh, some of it comes to light when there is scandal or when people want to brag about it, but the large 
proportion of their work is happens in complete secret. And hence the McKinsey mystique you write about. Absolutely. Yeah, so these guys are behind the scenes interviewer or behind the scenes consultants who I make a point in the book that they what they do is they sell credit to their clients for their ideas. Right? So McKinsey Say that again, they sell credit for their ideas. In other words, they'll give the client the idea and say, hey, you could take credit for this. They never claim credit for it, right? Because no CEO wants to hire them, say, tell me to do acquisition A or B, right. and then they do A, and McKinsey's over there saying, that was our idea. Right. They don't, that doesn't happen. But the trade-off is that McKinsey says, we will take no credit, but we will also take no blame. Except no blame. So let's talk a little bit about that blame. You and I were chatting. Um, I not looking to sell books. Headlines a, a column once called. This is from 2011. Is McKinsey and Company the root of all evil? I must have read something you had written before you had written the book. Tell me if this quote sounds familiar. McKinsey, the global consulting firm, has created dubious strategies for all manners of companies, ranging from Enron to General Electric. Indeed, wherever there has been a financial disaster in the world, if you look around somewhere in the background, McKinsey and Company is nearby. And let me throw some of these out at you and you tell me your thoughts. Side pockets and off-balance sheet accounting, leading it to become known as the firm that built Enron. Jeff Skilling was McKinsey, also HBS. Beforehand, right? Yeah, be before Enron. Oh, so he hid for the cycle. Yeah. <laughs> HBS, McKinsey, and then Enron. And then uh, that jail. Is perfect. Right. That's the full foursome. So, and, and while he was at Enron, he continued to use McKinsey to the tune of $10 million a year in fees. Nice. They hired MBAs, mostly Harvard MBAs, and- had McKinsey consultants write fawning articles and books like The War for Talent and uh, stuff about their off-balance sheet accounting, talking about how this new asset light company was the company of the future, and they were cheerleading all the way. McKinsey argued that New York City was losing derivative business to London and therefore should more aggressively pursue derivative underwriting. How did that work out? In, in the firm I talk about, in the fallout from the crisis, McKinsey was advising almost every single institution that collapsed. So uh, back to the That's secret awesome. part. We don't know what their advice was, but it certainly wasn't go in the direction of less, not more. It, it's not just financial firms they've advised that collapsed. They gave some advice to British railway company Railtrack. The advice was spend less on infrastructure, which led to a series of fatal accidents, and eventually Railtrack collapsed. Swiss Air implemented a McKinsey strategy, which was very helpful in eventually pointing them to bankruptcy. Now, we could argue, is that just a coincidence or not? Allstate did a uh, auto claims payout reduction. Uh, it was a McKinsey and company strategy. It wasn't that they were helping them manage how to do their payouts. They were reducing their legitimate claimants' payouts, and they lost a bunch of business over it and, and had some states look. I don't remember the outcome in the book, but there were states 
that had reviewed all states, state insurance. Oh, that I, I talk about that in the book. That yes. is that's probably the most disgusting <laughs> uh, piece of consulting I came across from a really kid, yeah from McKinsey. Well, well, the one that I think had the most, the biggest financial impact. And, and we'll come back to Allstate. So GE followed their advice before the crisis and lost a billion dollars. But the one that blows my mind, a little company called Bell Labs out of AT&T, eventually they changed the name to Lucent, invented the cell phone. But they didn't pursue it because McKinsey advised them, ain't no future in mobile phones. I mean, stop and think about that. How is that not justify a corporate death sentence when you manage to say to somebody, like if your advice is this whole mobile future technology thing ain't going anywhere, who would ever hire you again with that sort of expertise? It's a great question. I I make that point in the book that there's there are 10 reasons or to hire McKinsey only one of them is the advice that they give you. What are the other nine? Give uh, us give us some highlights. Let me see if I have nine. Uh, one is to show that you can afford them. Oh, so they it's are a, a luxury good. Okay, it's a signaling. Situation, it's a signaling thing. Right? That's funny. It, if you are the CEO uh, and you uh, aren't sure what to do, you're not going to ask your number two, or at least you're not going to display your level of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. They are a great uh, use of corporate money for personal you know, decision-making help. If you are the CEO of a company who needs to get rid of your number two because you're feeling him getting a little close to you, they are a wonderfully effective way of having a knife stuck in their back that does not have your fingerprints on it. You can restructure that person out with McKinsey's advice. If you've made a decision, you need to get it by your board. McKinsey told us to do it. Right. If you want to have the McKinsey works for everybody, right? So if you want the benefit of that knowledge, I'm sure they don't go around sharing one client stuff with another client, right? But, that but would be the death knell. We have some insight into They this have industry. insight because they're talking to everybody else. Right. So if you're the only one who's not talking to them, you're the only one who's not getting the benefit Bad advice. of that exposure. <laughs> Bad advice. Right. To me, it sounds like if someone could say as a corporation, like, why do I feel that Apple and Amazon don't listen to McKinsey? Or, or am I technologically naive uh no you know the it p- companies that know what they're doing uh-huh. and or sort of know what their plan is uh, yeah they don't need them as much so, except if you want to use them as the great uh, in their most modern incarnation which is the great rationalizers they are the people you bring in to cut costs so that you can point your finger and say i didn't want to do this mckinsey really yeah so as an investor, why would I want my company to spend all those millions of dollars to doing what the management has been hired That's to That's a do? good point. That was what I was saying that Jamie was talking about when he was criticizing Doesn't like general consultants. use of consultants. But no, it, it what McKinsey's business model is about personal relationships, right? They, mm-hmm. they have relationships with the CEO. Uh, yes, they burrow into companies, but it's very, it's about personal things. So you're absolutely right that if you're a shareholder, uh, like I, I say in the book, no CEO is an idiot for hiring them for all right. the reasons I just listed. Why right. wouldn't you? Sure. It's somebody else's money. But yeah, shareholders, unless, unless you, you know, it's one of those situations where 
you need the hiring of McKinsey to signal that you're serious about your reorganization or your cost cutting, and you want the market to know that you really mean it because you're going to spend the money, and then you're not just giving lip service. Hey. And this time we mean it. Yeah. So what's the relationship with McKinsey and Harvard, which goes back? Harvard Business Review was where they were publishing early on. How, how did that dynamic develop? Marvin Bauer, who was the you know longtime spiritual godfather and leader of McKinsey after James McKinsey died, was the one who had the insight. Uh, early on, consulting firms hired experienced professionals. So if you're an airline company and you want advice, they had like a retired airline CEO on the staff and you'd ask him because he knew what he was talking about. And Bauer, his contemporaries in the maybe 40s or so were like, wait a second, why don't these MBA schools are popping up all over the place? Why don't we hire them? They're cheaper way cheaper. We can mold them into our own image and create this army of whatever they are. Generate case studies on specific industries. And we can have them learn on the client's dime, right? So why, uh, why wait till they retire? So McKinsey was one of the first companies to really hire out of HBS with in earnest. And ever since then has been in some, there is no company that has hired more HBS grads than McKinsey. Really? Goldman, I think, would be second. Maybe not. There uh-huh. might, it might be like GE or something. But McKinsey's number one. And they hire them because the case method is the perfect uh, education and preparation for being a consultant. You're supposed to stand up in front of a group of people and talk about something that you don't really know a lot about and sound convincing. <laughs> we have been speaking with Duff McDonald. He is the author uh, most recently of The Golden Ticket about Harvard Business School and previous to that, The Firm, The Story of McKinsey. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column at bloombergview.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster. Welcome to the podcast. You know what question I forgot to ask you during the broadcast? If people want to find your work, they could go to DuffMcDonald.com. Yes. As well as Amazon and find bookstores everywhere. Yes. So you you have a list of all of your publications and everything else. I have my I have my books there, and I have my greatest hits. Okay. Journalism wise. There you go. So let's let's go over some of the stuff. Some of the stuff that we missed. You know what I didn't get to ask you that I wanted to chat about was the ascent of CEO pay. And who would you blame for it? Is that McKinsey? As some people have said, and I have a quote from you somewhere here about McKinsey, which is, 
Uh, is McKinsey to blame for skyrocketing CEO pay? You go back to the early um, pay consultants. It seems that McKinsey was back part of that. Yeah, there was a um, a consultant at McKinsey who who did a CEO pay study, and it was a post World War Two, I think. Back when the ratio between CEOs and the lowest paid people on the factory floor was were like, twenty five to one. Yeah, so, yeah, in the double digits. And the, the so one study that they did found that uh, uh, executive over some trailing period, five years or something, executive pay had had risen more slowly than worker pay. And suddenly that study was in very high demand uh-huh. by corporate boards. And that led to the Harvard Business Review, publishing an annual study and there you get your perpetual motion machine being mm-hmm. built and now we're up to 400 or so to one and you have uh, uh, compensation committees made up of fellow CEOs who think that they are worth 50 million a year so therefore, why shouldn't this guy be? And I call it in the Golden Passport, uh, and we may have to cut this for the censors, the, one of the most intricately designed circle jerks in business history. Because mm-hmm. everybody is, is ba- it's log rolling for the future. Everybody yeah. is, I remember back in the day when Spy Magazine would show log rolling in our time, and it's Duff McDonald says, Ritholtz's book is great. And Ritholtz says, Duff, Duff McDonald's book, must read. And they would always show the matching um, blurbs. That's great. And that has stayed with me for all these years. That's awesome. Log rolling in our time. I'm old enough to remember when Spy Magazine was actually, you know, the onion before the onion was right, the onion. Right, right. So that, that's kind of interesting. There's a really fascinating NPR Planet Money about how— a Clinton tax oh, yeah. basically changed the dynamics of CEO compensation and led to people saying, all right, let's give them a lot of stock options because that doesn't cost us anything. I talked about that in the in the Golden yes. Passport, too, as uh, one of uh, the greatest examples of unintended consequences Absolutely. ever. They tried to put a cap on CEO pay. Cash pay. Cash pay. Was it like a million dollars? Ten million. Ten million. And above that, the taxes became onerous. Right. So what? two things happened from that. One is uh, average CEO pay was not $10 million at the time, but it quickly converged right on sure. $10 million. And stock options. so Which became uh, enormous. Which became enormous. So a well-intentioned uh, move by uh, Clinton uh, blew up in uh, you know the country's face. So in- you have the tax policy, and then on top of everything else, you have the FASB accounting that basically says, well, stock options really aren't a cost. You know, just because you have to actually go out and buy it in the market doesn't mean it's a cost to the shareholders. And if they are, you should you might be able to reprice them anyway right. after the fact. So it so that was just one of those things. And when people look at how CEO pay has run away, 
That's one factor. But there has to be the consultants are one thing. The, the tax change is, is something else. The accountant treatment is something else. Any other factors? HBS, are- um, I lay some blame at their doorstep uh, for helping uh, be build the CEO fame machine, right? So the case mm-hmm. method is teaches uh, from the perspective of the CEO, what would you do? How would you save this company? You, you, you. Right. And then uh, Fortune so McKinsey, Magazine. Kent McKinsey, Harvard, and and what were you about to say about Fortune? Then Fortune will put you on their cover and, and tell you and that you, you are the world's greatest person because you uh, uh, know how to uh, price pharmaceuticals properly or something. <laughs> right. You just crank them up towards uh, 100 times more what you paid for them, and there you go. Right. It's uh, and buy some patent protection from your. Got to modify the pharmaceutical every year, so you extend that exactly your lifespan. You're, you're and this is good. tricky stuff, so you deserve the fame for doing it. If you now, how do you explain that in Europe and in Asia, we don't see the same uh, enormous pay packages? They might be starting to tick up, but they're nowhere near what we do here in the United I think States. So. I think Martin Sorrell is overpaid. He he's. The WPP. Okay. So, sorry, Sir Martin Sorrow. Oh, there you go. Well, uh, once you're knighted, then, then, then whatever you— right, right, you deserve it all. Uh, I think it's because, like, uh, as uh, some historians, business historians point out, one of the ones who I found particularly insightful is a guy named Robert Locke, who's been living in Germany for some L-O-C-K-E? time. L-O-C-K-E? L-O-C-K-E. And he talks about the fact that uh, the— you know, there's 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 two oppositional stances in American business. One is uh, business versus government, mm-hmm. and one is management versus worker. Sure, right? And uh, um, neither of those has to be. And in other variants of capitalism, like Germany, neither of them is nearly as uh, polarized right. as it is here. And uh, management values the input of their uh, employees, I think, a little more than they do in the States, especially if they've gone through the fame machine of a place like HBS, where you're convinced that you are the reason for uh, all success and you blame government or, or unions for your failures. So... Um, I, I huh. think uh, in at least J- the Japan as well as Germany, um, they're a little calmer about what constitutes success and what its origins are, and they're not so obsessed with trying to take credit for it. Mm-hmm. So they they're easy. They're better at sharing it. That that's that's quite fascinating. I know I only have you till about six for another half hour. I'm gonna I'm gonna see what else we skipped. Before getting to my 10 favorite questions, uh, you know, we kind of blew through the journalism portion of, of our first segment. Let, let's talk a little bit about journalism. And you, you explained how you sort of serendipitously happened into, into writing. What, what are some of the things you really like about writing books? And what are the things that perhaps you are not so enthralled with? Uh it's great uh, for for me at least uh, as a freelancer. Th- th- this is a practical answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, freelancing got really. Uh, I had a I sort of had a nice three or four year run of freelance magazine writing 
uh, before the crisis, and it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, when money got tight, freelance got a lot more difficult, uh, and uh, writing books uh, is uh, is easier on uh, from a cash management perspective. Really? Yeah. So you you've put out three books in ten years. Yeah. And what's it, the next book that's coming out? Uh, we're, we're, my agent is hounding me to get it to the publisher now because the reviews for the Golden Passport are so good. So we're right. trying to. You've finish been, it. by the way, you've been everywhere the past. By the time this broadcast, the past month or so, really nicely reviewed in all sorts of major uh, publications. So they want to strike when the iron is hot. Is that the business side? Of, yeah. Of so 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 financially, it's been in, it's it's worked for me. Uh, as far as what do I like about it um, from the actual process itself, uh, if there is a criticism of of uh, the latter two books that I just don't care about, it's that they focus a little too much on the history. I love the history. You have to tell that. Yeah, story. I think it's I think it's fascinating. Just tell me what happened Tuesday. Who cares? That's a different. Yeah, that's Bloomberg, right? Right. Uh, right? And but uh, that's for two million companies, so it's it's a lot of volume. This is one company you want it to be a mile deep. Yeah, and uh, I love uh, you know the reporting part of it. Uh, I, there was a point in my career, I think it was at Money Magazine, you know, mm-hmm. when you're writing personal finance, it's hard to get that motivated for it. I remember uh, uh, when, I would be, when I would be calling people, I would actually be hoping they didn't answer their phone. That's a, that's a warning sign that you're doing That you're the in the wrong, wrong job. Yeah. Uh, now it's like once I'm on to a subject I like, just all you're doing is reading and talking to people who are introducing you to other people who are introducing you to other people. It's great. Right. Like all you're doing is spending your time learning stuff. Uh, and if you're interested in it, you know, it, what a way to make a living. Uh, writing, the writing stuff... I've gotten more confident with each successive book. This last one is a little uh, at, in places uh, intemperate, but uh, that <laughs> well, wasn't the firm somewhat intemperate throughout. Yeah, although I was amazed, there were people who were confused about what my true opinion of McKinsey. What? And it's like, do you? The root of all evil. How confusing is that? When you say root, do you mean like have, potato? Have you or? never read between the lines before? I thought it was pretty clear that it you was, were. That's what I thought too. But so I in this book, I may, I tried terrible. to make sure that didn't happen right. in this. When book. you say they're terrible, do you mean they're like pretty good, or what do you mean by terrible? I mean, you uh, uh, did you really get pushback on, yeah. on the McKinsey book? Yeah, that- there were people who said he asked a question, are they worth it or not? And he doesn't give a satisfactory answer. And my response- You gave 10 to, bullet points as to- It's like, it depends who you are, right? Right. If you are the CEO, yes. If you're the shareholder, maybe. If you're society, probably not, unless you rate efficiency as the highest value of all. And is that really what they do? Are they really the efficiency masters? Yeah, all they do is come in Just and optimize on, stuff for you. Mm-hmm. Regardless of consequence. Yeah, and you know, they, they have a sort of a boilerplate approach to problem solving and thinking that works very well in process situations. Mm-hmm. And if you want someone to come in who is outside of your organization so who doesn't come with baggage and can do stuff without uh you know personal bias no ties no obligation and they just can, come and in they're lop ruthless. off heads and, and yeah. move on yeah 
It's like hiring samurai to just okay kill everybody <laughs> exactly. in this village. They are corporate samurai, right? And then leave. Yeah, uh, that that's pretty interesting. So, journalism today, how do you feel about or think about the rise of fake news? And is there anything we could do about it? Uh, I I think I think it's horribly depressing that um, uh, we uh, were able to elect. A president who uh, so willfully is like trampling the press. The, well, just sort of the essence of like what is truth. Like, yes, we can all have different opinions, sure. right? But we should, but not we, different facts. We should be able to agree at what day of the week it is, <laughs> or right. what the temperature is outside. And the fact that we've ended up, you know, in a situation where nobody believes anybody who's they have decided is not trustworthy, it's horrible. There was just an interesting article. I'm trying to remember who, where I saw it. It was either AP or McClatchy that said his tweets have lost influence. The president's tweets, they no longer move markets. They no longer disrupt things. Even when he comes out, as he did a month or so ago, and said, yeah, we should break up the big banks— the market sputtered for about 90 seconds and then quickly recovered all its losses. At one point in time, his sort of freeform, disruptive, you know, machine gunning had an impact. That's because everybody was freaking out that we managed to elect him. Well, you know, it's if you look around the world, what's been happening, you have the Brexit vote, you have the Le Pen vote, you have Donald Trump. The rise of popularism, populism, around the world has ramifications. You've railed against the financial elite. Many voters, both here and abroad, are doing the same thing. And so what's kind of surprising is a lack of pivot from Trump once he's elected to say, all right, I have the wind on my back, let's do ABC. And instead, it's this sort of odd all right, let's check out Spicer gets great ratings. Let's keep them. Wait, that you haven't figured out what your jo- new job, you have a new job. Figure out what you're supposed to do and try not to blow us all up. That doesn't, that transition doesn't seem to have happened. I think it's because he never expected to win. And I 100% yeah. couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. That, that's why there are so many unappointed positions. Normally you go in with a list of these 3,000 people and here are our top 100 that didn't happen. I think he's as surprised as anybody. You know, uh, b- back to the journalism thing and the fake news thing. One thing that has occurred to me, though, is like the Internet has allowed us to uh, be aware of more people's opinions mm-hmm. than the media's opinions. True. Which, you know, historically, we, we, whoever was on TV and stuff. It, it, what does that do for us? Well, it. Uh, oh, my, my point is just... We might not have actually gone through such a significant change with fake news. We may have been in this state before, but mm-hmm. didn't really realize it. So uh, you you have more opinions, some of which are paid shills for one side or the other, um, some of which are just clearly click-hungry Macedonian teenagers but putting up scam websites, and some, you know, not every— when two people are having an argument and one says, well, the Earth is an oblate spheroid, and the other person says, no, the Earth is flat, that's not a credible debate. And on top of everything else, 
our cognitive systems are set up so that even when someone is wrong, they don't, and you correct them, they don't remember the correction. If, if anything, it hardens their erroneous view. And there's all sorts of crazy you stuff. You know what's funny is on that point, I say that one of my points in the Harvard book is that they have spent so much time telling themselves that they have uh, a moral righteousness to their leader their as an aspect of their leadership it's like you telling the story of something that happened so many times that suddenly like on your 50th telling a thing that you weren't sh- that sure about the first time you told it you're suddenly it's a fact now cuz you've, you've been said- speaking to my wife haven't you? <laughs> Yeah. She doesn't understand how the story gets better each telling. And I'm like, that is editing, of course. And uh, in in all seriousness, when they do studies on memory and witnesses, when you tell a story to the cops or whoever— It becomes your truth. Right. You, the second time you tell that, you're not recalling what you witnessed. You're recalling the previous yeah. discussion. And so uh, the more you tell it, it, the further and further it gets away from the original— experience, which is why you're supposed to take contemporaneous notes and blah, blah, blah. So I could talk about this sort of stuff forever. Let's let's get to my favorite questions so we don't end up keeping you here all night. Um, all right, so you told us what you did before uh, working as a journalist. You were at Goldman Sachs for two years. Nothing in between. From there, you went straight into writing. My first job after Goldman was at Derivatives Week. So you were covering derivatives as a journalist? As a journalist. That sounds... uh, During the... uh, When I think it was Air Products or something. One of the first big derivatives uh blow-ups. Right. In 94. Oh, really? Oh, this is way back. Yeah. And the guy there said to me, "Um, what are you doing Every all of our the people who work here want to work on Wall Street. You're the You're first the person who's way. ever come from Wall Street to, to work McLean here. Did the same thing. Yeah, right, but, and to- and then he said he said, "How do I know you're not going to go back to Wall Street?" And I said, "I'm not going back to Wall Street." Right. Six months later, I left for Money Magazine, and he which was a Dow Jones publication. No, if- Time Inc. Time Inc. So okay. he he pulled smart me, money was Dow Jones. Yeah, right. he pulled me into his office. He said, "You told me you weren't going to leave," and I said, "I told you I wasn't going back to Wall Street. I didn't tell you I wasn't going to go to a better publication." <laughs> um, so I then was at Money for five years uh-huh. and realized it was time to quit when I had written the exact same story twice. Right, because service magazines. If if you're actually good at what you do at a service magazine, you should write the same story price. Jason Zweig said his job is to write the same story week in, week yeah. out, and not let his readers or his editors know that he's doing yeah, that. Yeah, totally. I worked with Jason. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at that point, uh, I got uh, an offer. Uh, Red Herring Magazine was growing during- I remember, 90s. Yeah, Internet 1.0. And they hired me as their New York bureau chief. And- um, uh, public markets editor because they were all VC and private equity. So, so tell us about some of your early mentors. I I can come up with uh, three. One was a guy named Michael Civi at uh, Money Magazine. The uh, name is familiar. A he, writer or editor? A writer slash editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was sort of the 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 central uh, financial uh, writer for years. Uh, fascinating guy. Uh, a uh, and um, he his his method of writing it could 
you know, could bore you to tears given its uh, repetitive aspects, mm-hmm. but it was very effective. So he was the one who taught me sort of the simplicity and clarity uh, were key. Uh, the next one uh, was uh, Jason Ponton, who was the editor of Red Herring Magazine. He's at uh, MIT Tech Review now. Mm-hmm. And he uh, brought a flair to uh, Red Herring uh, that was eye-opening for me coming out of a service magazine like Money. And, you know, he sort of prayed at the altar of The Economist. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he made me realize when I just when I wasn't even sure of it that writing could be like a joyous experience as mm-hmm. opposed to a mind numbing one. And then the next one was uh, s- someone who just died, actually, Christopher Byron. Oh, sure. Who was at the Observer? He was at the Observer. Uh, I had the the um, good fortune to follow in his footsteps, writing a similar column in, in the Observer. I hired him at Red Herring to write for us because I thought he was so great. And he was the one who um, uh, showed me how to write with attitude when without fear and taking aim at uh, the right targets. You know, I spent most of my early career, uh, you know, doing positive stories. Here's something you should do. It's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And at Red Herring, here's some great technologies. Here's a great trend. These are all fascinating and awesome things. And uh, turns out it's just as fun to call people to account for uh, more fun. Yeah, it's more fun. And uh, I don't, I can't think of another writer who inspired me more with his writing than Christopher Byron. No one even comes close. Huh? That, that's that's really interesting. Um, tell us about. What other journalists influenced how you write? Byron is, sure. would be number one. Um, I'd, I'm not sure I have, you know, the guys who Graydon Carter is head at Vanity Fair doing business writing. It's a, used to used to be the publisher of Spy, and that's where the phrase short-fingered vulgarian yeah. was published. And that has to be... 20, 25 years ago. Yeah, and and he is... And it's still following... It's a great... It, like You know, it's like any publication. It has its uh, ebbs and flows, but he is a great... He's one of the great editors, mm-hmm. and he hires great writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah. Vanity Fair is a monster Yeah, you know, Michael Lewis is there. Va- mm-hmm. Bethany McLean is there. William Cohan is there. Brian Burrow is there. Uh, you know, what else... Who else do you need? Right. Me. Graydon, I'm available. Um, so uh, um, the the way that they do business stories at Vanity Fair, I, right. I wrote for them. They're deep, in depth. Yeah, I did like form. a decade's worth of work with them. Graydon mm-hmm. gave me, you know, was awesome enough to give me a lot of work for a while when I was freelance. Um, that's how you do a good business story. Right. Those guys do it better than anybody. They put a lot of. I I was quoted by them in something. I think three different fact checkers called me. It was. Nobody uses that, does that sort of depth of... Um, yeah, and if you read that stuff and put it up side by side with Fortune, like the people at Fortune, where I've been a contributor, they should be embarrassed of themselves. So you're not going to be a contributor anymore, no. apparently. <laughs> uh, like, uh, that's real storytelling. So, Graydon, but then if there is, like, one name who I read, not with an eye to uh, trying to write like him, because it will never happen, right? but who I read with, just because it brings me... 
joy a euphoric something is adam gopnik at the new yorker he is the greatest in my opinion he's the greatest writer of all the journalists no kidding yeah I, i i get the new yorker i've seen his by the way, they have a, a killer lineup. They got a murderer's well. row too. Ryan, yeah. uh, Ryan Leeson, go go down the Sheila list. Sheila Kohatkar just joined right. them. She's an old. She's a former Bloomberg person who just had the book out on hedge funds. Yeah, um, Shark something. I forgot the name. Uh, Predators something. Um, we'll we'll figure out what that is. Uh, they just have a monstrous lineup. The problem is that the magazines don't stop coming. You can't <laughs> you can't get your uh, Vanity Fair is monthly. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, New Yorker is like every other day. It seems. In New yeah, York. I used to. I used to. I had times given where up. I stopped subscribing to the New Yorker because the piles would give me right. guilt. I just want the online access. Stop mailing me. Yeah, the get magazine. that. Get the uh, um, the app. The no, there's an app called Texture. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's fifteen bucks a month. You get every magazine there is. Really? Yeah. I'm done with uh, getting the Yeah, stuff don't get this up. straight up from them. Get it through texture. It's awesome. Usually I hate the Expedia slash, you know, hotels.com. I want to go directly. It's no, no, this one's better. right. It's awesome. This is, all right, I will definitely check out texture. Um, let's talk about, since we're talking about writers, let's talk about uh, books. That's Charlie Pellet, Voice of the Subway. Mm-mm. When you hear, stand clear of the closing doors, oh, no <laughs> that's him. Um, let's... Uh, by the way, for people who are listening, we're in a glass uh, terrarium, the studio, and there's an endless parade of people walking by, and some of them wave, and you, I'm trying not to be distracted, but, you know, it's Bloomberg. <laughs> when you got two famous happens. people like us in yeah, here, that's everybody right. stares, right? Um, so let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books? Who are some of your favorite authors? Uh, by the way, this is the single most requested question I get from listeners. So... Uh, um before I was a journalist uh I would say the balance of my reading was probably 90% fiction, mm-hmm. 10% nonfiction. And even these days, if you don't include the reading I do for work, work it's probably 70 30 fiction. So give us some fiction names and give us some nonfiction names. Uh fiction I lean to people like Borges, uh, Italo Calvino, uh, Nabokov. Give us some, some book, book titles. Uh, Borges' book, Labyrinths, mm-hmm. short stories. It's fantastic. Italo Calvino's book, uh, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, Invisible Cities, mm-hmm. um, uh, Nabokov, Everything. Right. Um uh, David Foster Wallace, I was a fan of. I right. thought the sort of verbal pyrotechnics there were great. Uh, in recent years, I rediscovered Stephen King from when just I just w- had a long conversation about. Uh, it. I I read uh, I took in uh, Under the Dome on a trip a couple of years ago. It's like his latest fat one, uh-huh. like the size of the stand and stuff. He's still got it. Matt Wallert is a, a former principal at Microsoft Ventures. And what he, we were talking about Stephen King, he said he likes to every now and then find an author and just devour the entire over- I used to do that all the time. Just straight. Through. I used to do that with but science the, fiction. Not so much. My brother with, does that. Right. We'll find an author and go, yeah. all right, I've now read everything I used that to Larry- do, I used to do that with fiction writers, and then I realized that I didn't want to do it anymore because it's like you use it all up and you want to savor right. some of it for later. Right. Uh, I like... Um, 
Oh, there's a couple that are obvious ones that are. What about what about nonfiction? I'm not, you know, considering that I've read a or written a biography. Uh, I'm not a huge reader of biographies. Mm-hmm. I thought the Power Broker oh, uh, was one of the Robert greatest. Caro on Robert Moses. on Robert Moses. You know, it's a kind of it's an imposing book, book but yeah. it is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I I plowed my shelf that for thing. decades, literally decades. You know what? I it was on my shelf too. And then when I sold the Jamie Dimon book, I was like, I should read a biography, <laughs> and I took that out to a friend's house in Amagansett by myself for a weekend and read it. And at the end of it, you I was read like, that in a weekend. Uh, no, sorry, I was out there for a couple of days, a month, yeah. and uh, I was as soon as I finished, I was like, oh my god, what have I done? I can't do this. I can't write anything close to this. It, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. It's been um, it's been lauded as one of the it's greatest, one of the greatest biographies of all all time. Yeah. Uh, I I'm more I do more like uh, uh, st- I veer more into science and math stuff than history sure. or or give us give us a few books. Um, You're talking right in my sweet spot. So. I am you know stuff like um, all the pop science stuff like the history of zero. Okay. Or um, did you read the information by James Glick? I have the information by James Glick. I haven't read it. Probably the best book I read in the past decade. Uh, Consciousness Explained, one okay. of my favorite books, Daniel Dennett. Yep. Uh, best book I've re- ever read in the last decade was an Adam Gopnik book called, uh, I don't know if this is the name of it, but it's if uh, Lincoln and Darwin or Darwin and Lincoln. Okay. And it is like a dual biography. Parallel that, lives sort of thing? Parallel lives, uh, more like parallel thought mm-hmm. and parallel... Uh, changes in the way they helped the rest of us change the way we think through the way they did what they did. Mm -hmm. And I told people afterwards, I was like, I never would have read a biography of Darwin or of Lincoln. And I certainly wouldn't have read a joint one, except it was Gopnik. Right. And it is one of the greatest books Really? Yeah. Oh, my. Well, I'm going to add that to my list for sure. Uh, uh, that's a decent number. Give me one more. Oh, I'm Because I see I'm you're thinking about a lot here. of... Uh... Uh, oh, uh, my favorite, I think, uh, multi-book reading experience uh, in the last 20 years or so was Neil Stevenson's Baroque Trilogy. Okay. Uh, which each of those books was a thousand pages long. Right. And I was reading one of them when I moved uh, at some point. And the book ended up in a box in the attic, and I forgot about it and found it a decade later and then finished the trilogy. Really? And it is— Just picked it up where you left off and just plowed through I don't know. I think I might have started again, but mm-hmm. there was—there's uh, so much in it. He is a hilarious writer. Uh, uh, the, it's all about money and the history of money. What is the money. big book he, he wrote? He wrote Cryptonomicon. Okay, and Neuromancer. Snow that? Crash. Right. Uh, and but the Baroque cycle, the three of them, that is like it is. Uh, he he could have just set the pen down and retired. It Duck. is a piece of greatness. Wow, that's amazing. Let let's move forward past books. Um, we've already spent enough time talking about journalism as an industry. Um, here's another reader question: Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. You know, I was thinking about that one because you'd sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, These are the ones that require recall. Oh, this one doesn't require much recall. I like. 
I don't really have too many uh uh like career failures. Uh-huh. I failed in a marriage. Okay. And I failed at, like I drank too much alcoholically mm-hmm. at the same time. And no coincidence there? That uh, not not a random correlation there? No. And um what did I learn that I better grow up and like you know I treated her I did not treat her well at the end of our marriage and it was just a colossal personal failure on so many fronts mm-hmm. about like responsibility and and uh, doing the right thing and not uh, blaming other people for uh, the things that bother you. Luckily, my uh, my ex wife is a forgiving person mm-hmm. and. Um, so things have, things are okay, but it was like I just learned that how to not be a horrible person. And my last two and favorite questions, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college grad who came to you and said, I'm thinking about being a writer? That's a good one. Um, <laughs> you know, if you have... Uh, you know, you're not going to accidentally end up in the situation I have, you know, been lucky to end up in uh, anymore because it so was. So what you did, you I don't, don't think, think that happens again. again. And not, and it's not because I can do something. That, I just think the, the structure of the industry everything has changed. Everything's it's changed. So different. You, if you have a, a passion and a facility for writing, uh, you know, you got, I think it's, got, my advice would probably be targeted. You know, you got to figure out your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, hopefully the New York Times and, and you know, whoever will be around for a while. But um, the the price paid per dollar spent, or sorry, the price paid per word is in free fall. Right. And the only thing that is going to um, retain its value is, uh, a great scoops and B great writing and C great storytelling. Mm-hmm. So you got to refine to do great storytelling about any particular thing. You got to know enough about it to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, you know you got to figure out what your thing is and hone it. Although I don't think I should be in a position to be telling aspiring journalists what to do because I never was one. So I don't really um, I don't know how they think. Because I don't know how they thought back then. Gotcha. And our final question, what is it that you know about writing today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first starting out? This is an easy one. And uh, and I could, I could claim that I learned it, but my brother actually just said it to me mm-hmm. uh, like two years ago. I was getting ready to write the uh, Harvard book, and I was spewing out you know, some uh, endless uh, rant about Elton Mayo, who was, you know, a father of human resources, also a fraud. Um, (laughs) And uh, I finished telling him the story. And he said, he said, all right, don't take what I'm about to tell you the wrong way, please. And he goes, you should write less like you currently write. And more like you speak. Interesting. And the lesson there was, I've been trying too hard. Not not that I've been trying too hard to like sound smart or or write in a specific way. Mm-hmm. I it I just it wasn't coming out 
as easily and fluidly as loosen the grip a little, loosen and make the it grip, more and, flu- yeah, uh-huh. and and uh, more natural sounding, more natural and storytelling. Tell stories the way you tell stories, and don't you know um, change it because you're you know in putting it in written form. And you know, part of that has to do with the legacy of who you're writing for. Like various mm-hmm. publications will won't let you write in certain ways. But the main point was just like relax, man, mm-hmm. and say it the way you want to say it because when you're effective that way. And so find I did it. your true voice. Is that a, a good way to say it? <laughs> or uh, yeah, or uh, you know, just don't. It's not not take the the job seriously. It's it's like not get all wound up in what you're doing just do what you're doing and and be easy about it we have been speaking with duff mcdonald contributing editor at the new york observer and author most recently of the golden passport harvard business school etc etc if you have enjoyed this conversation be sure and check out itunes soundcloud and bloomberg.com and you can see any of our other 100-plus conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, and our producer booker, Taylor Riggs, for helping us put these conversations together. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.